This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, with the official Open to the Olympics in Brazil, we'll focus on Latin America's favorite sport, football, or as we say in the U.S., soccer. And also, we continue our discussion about human rights and the militarization of Honduras. But first, Chorzy Martin is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. U.S. President Barack Obama underlined his commitment to the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal this week. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, includes a dozen countries along the Pacific Rim, including Peru, Chile, Mexico, and the United States. So the answer is to make sure that globalization and trade is working for us, not against us. Uh, and that's why today we are reaffirming our commitment to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I am a strong supporter of TPP because it will reduce tariffs, taxes basically, on American goods from cars to crops and make it easier for Americans to export into the fastest growing markets of the world. Obama made his remarks during the state visit of the prime minister of Singapore to the White House. Singapore is also a country committed to the trade deal. However, the presidential candidates of both major parties in the U.S. opposed the trade pact. And the Republican majority leader of the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, says the chances of the Senate ratifying the deal are pretty slim before Obama's term expires. Electoral authorities in Venezuela have approved the next step in the process to recall the country's president. Opposition parties gathered more than a million signatures on a petition asking for the removal of President Nicolas Maduro. The next step in the process will require the gathering of four million signatures during a three-day period, signatures from those backing the removal of the president. Electoral authorities did not set a date for the next petition drive. Venezuela is suffering from food shortages and hyperinflation. The official opening to the Summer Olympics in Rio is set for today, Friday, August 5th. But this week saw more anti-Olympic protests in Brazil. And the Olympic soccer competition is already underway. Hundreds of protesters blocked the progress of the Olympic torch after its arrival in Rio and staged yet another riot. Brazil has seen weeks of anti-Olympic protests. Brazilians are upset with the cost of the Games, which are being staged during one of the country's worst economic recessions in a century. Police used tear gas and pepper spray to break up the riot. Olympic organizers say at least a million tickets remain unsold for the Games. Despite the public mood, the Games have already begun. In men's soccer, the preliminary round featured many ties, but key scores included Honduras over Algeria 3-2 and Portugal topping Argentina 2-0. In women's soccer, key matches included France beating Colombia 4-0 and Brazil topping China 3-0. We'll have more on Olympic soccer after this newscast. It appears not all the athletes of note are in Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics. This story is actually about a group of politicians who are showing off their athletic moves before key meetings. Yes, the new cabinet for Peru's new president, 
are the exercising politicians. You might remember the new president is 77 years old. That's Pedro Pablo Kaczynski, who was sworn in last week. Now Kaczynski wants his cabinet ministers working out weekly before the regular cabinet sessions. Kuzinski says it's not just to invigorate the cabinet before the meetings, but to set an example that Peruvians need to work out more. The first cabinet workout session was held in the square outside the government palace and featured high-volume electronic music and yoga mats. The new president was all smiles after the workout, apparently dismissing the adage that leaders should never let people see them sweat. For Latin Pulse, I'm Chorsey Martin. Thanks, Chorsey. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Los Angeles. Our listening group in L.A. was our second-largest this past week, behind only our listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. So we say thank you very much to all of our listeners in California and elsewhere around the globe. Also, a special nod to our listening group in Australia. One of those listeners contacted us via social media to remind us A lot of folks listen to our program in the Southern Hemisphere, so perhaps we should reconsider using the term summer break in July, when it's clearly wintertime down under. Thanks for that reminder, and to that end, a programming advisory. Latin Pulse will be taking a seasonal break next week, but we'll be back online August the 19th. And now on to our focus on football at this year's Olympic Games in Rio. As we just heard, many of the preliminary games have already been played in Brazil. We asked Joshua Nadel for his expert analysis of the competition. Nadel is with North Carolina Central University, and he's the author of Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America. We reached him via Skype from Carborough, North Carolina, and we asked him to start his analysis with his thoughts on the women's competition in Rio. The American women have already posted a win. And so um, is this the American USA team? Uh, Are they going to go for the gold? And is there anybody else who's going to compete with them for that? Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, they should go for the gold. They're coming off of a a pretty convincing win at the Women's World Cup last year. Um, But there are a couple other teams that, that should give them a run for their money. I think France... Germany uh, and Brazil will all give them sort of a, a, a chase. Um, and Brazil is really, I think, you know, the, the, this, they're going for it. They've got, you know, their Marta, the leading, their all-time leading goal scorer. They've got Cristiana, who's tied for the all-time leading, tied for the, the record for most goals in the Olympics, men or women. Um, and then they also have uh, Formiga, who's this sort of 38-year-old, midfielder who who seems to you know have the the stamina of the energizer bunny um and i think that they really need to be a favorite to win they they sort of took down um they took down china pretty convincingly yesterday uh three nothing um you know i think france which beat colombia the other uh the other south american qualifier um france beat colombia for nothing um and germany sort of destroyed zimbabwe um, so I, I think those are the four favorites to win. Let's talk about the Brazilian team. You've sketched them out a little bit for us here. Um, do they have the extra advantage? They're, they're playing on home turf. Um, one would think so. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say given sort of, um, let's say, 
let's say, continuing stereotypes about uh, women's soccer in, in Latin America and, and in Brazil as well. Uh, I mean, many of the Brazilian players play overseas because the Brazilian professional league is not, uh, for women is not particularly uh, well-marketed, well-promoted, well-funded, uh, etc. Um, and in fact, I think four of the players play in China um, because they get paid about five times as much in China as they would in Brazil. Um, many of them play in Europe, a couple play in the United States. But, but one thing about the team, particularly uh, in comparison to many of the other you know, non-European and, and, and United States teams is that they, the women are in fact professional players, um, you know, with, with, you know, more than a semi-pro club, let's say. When we talk about soccer, football in Latin America, uh, and we're talking about the women's side of the sport, uh, you have mentioned to me in passing before that the only reason we might be talking about Brazil in this conversation is because it's not in good shape and you would think that it might be in better shape in Latin America as far as the competition and how active the teams are. The big thing that's happening right now or that's been happening um, is that there's there's really a lack of depth in women's soccer in South America, uh, which I think speaks not to the lack of play um, by women nor to the lack of sort of grassroots grassroots soccer that's available for women and girls there, but more to, uh, for me anyway, a lack of commitment on the part of, of the federations and the confederations. So there are 10 teams that play uh, in, in the, the confederation that is CONMEBOL or the, the Confederation of South American Football. Um, and only four of those teams are, are considered active over the last 18 months. So that's Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. What that means really is that none of the other teams are playing. So there's very little uh, competition um, for you know the four active teams, uh, obviously, unless they're willing to travel um, far distances to to, to play. Um, and also, I mean, the the the, the qualifier for the Olympics um, is the Copa America Femenina, which is also the qualifier for the World Cup and the Pan Am. Pan American Games. So in other words, the last time some of these teams would have played uh, Paraguay, Uruguay, you know, Venez- uh, Venezuela, though Venezuela somehow is, is still considered active, but the last time many of these teams would have played would have been in 2014. Um, and so, you know, for Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela, their, their opponents are few and far between. Uh, and that's actually, I mean, a broader problem for, for women's soccer. Um, you know, New Zealand, which lost to the United States last night, um, they, they played Papua New Guinea, I believe, in, in their qualifiers. Um, they beat Papua New Guinea in Papua New Guinea 7-0 seven, seven or 7-1, and then Papua New Guinea didn't make the return trip to New Zealand. So they just sort of didn't show up. Um, I'm not sure whether that was because of a lack of funds or something else, but, um, but certainly women's teams across the, the world have trouble raising money and getting money from federations to travel for matches. Let's make that bridge then to um, the men's side of the sport. I guess we would say the richer side <laughs> of football. Yes, we would. And, and, and how do we characterize the competition on the men's side for the gold in Rio? Wow, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I, normally I would say that Latin America has four, four potential winners uh, in the tournament, right? Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico all qualified. Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico 
brought pretty strong teams. I mean, I, I should say, right, just for, for listeners who may not be aware that the, the Olympic tournament is an is a under-23 tournament. On the men's side. So it's side. not the full, on the men's side, exactly. So it's not a, not a, not a full national squad tournament. Um, there are three senior players allowed. Uh, but, um, but generally speaking, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit more of a crapshoot in a lot of ways because there's a lot of unknown players. So teams that don't necessarily always do well, um, can make it pretty far in the Olympics. Um, you know, Honduras, for example, made it to the quarterfinals last Olympics and lost three, two to Brazil. So it's a close game. Um, but so anyway, to get back to what I was saying, sorry, um, you know, of the four teams that I would say, four of, of the five Latin American qualifiers, um, normally you'd say Argentina has a good chance to do well. They, they won it actually in, uh, in 2004 and 2008. But this year they're sort of in disarray uh, after the Copa America. Uh, you know, the coach resigned. They had only nine players on the squad uh, as of early July. They just named a, a new coach in early July as well. Um, so it's very much uh, a squad in disarray. It's, and, and a lot of that, and obviously Messi re- retired after uh, the Copa America. Um, a lot of that has to do with sort of internal conflicts within Argentine football, um, which is really quite sad. Um, Brazil is really trying to win, I think, as, as we talked about prior to the Copa America Centenario. Um, you know, Neymar didn't play uh, in the United States in order to really try to win the the uh, the gold in the olympics it's the one tournament that brazil has not won uh, on the men's side and they really want to uh, they lost in the finals to mexico in london in 2012 um and you know i think there's something fitting about the fact that there's the, the final is going to be at the maracana where you know they famously lost the world cup in 1950 so perhaps they're trying to erase some ghosts there um you know and then i think mexico is the defending champion you know, even though they were embarrassed by Chile in the Copa America Centenario, right there, they're um, they've bring, they brought a strong squad, and again, it's it's a young squad, um, but but they brought one of their sort of senior strikers to to really sort of uh, to give some strength to the team. I think. And they're not going to have to face those Chileans. And they don't have to face the Chileans. They do play Germany in the first group game, but. Uh, <laughs> But they, you know, the other members of their group are South Korea and Fiji. So I, I certainly don't think Fiji is going to give them any trouble. Um, you know, and that's one of the things about the Olympics, right? You get it. Uh, Fiji is there somehow. Um, and, uh, you know, they're not a particularly strong team, let's say. Well, what teams are going to challenge the Brazilians and the Mexicans for the gold? You know, that's a... a a good question. Um, I mean, I think Colombia could. Uh, Germany certainly um, uh, should. You know, and then again, you get back to the idea that 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 you know the youth teams are much less known. So I mean, you know, Portugal is in Argentina's group. One would think that as the you know as the champions of Europe, recently crowned champions of Europe, they'll have a strong squad, um, but. Again, it's under-23 squad. Um, Sweden could do well. Nigeria could do well. You know, when, when looking at the favorites, I, 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 I hate playing the game of favorites because, you know, I feel like the, a success in a soccer tournament like this is really making it to the semifinals. Um, but, um, but I would say that, you know, Sweden, Nigeria, 
Japan, Germany, Mexico, Brazil are probably the six if I had to uh, if I had to say. Well, thank you so much, Joshua Nadel of North Carolina Central University, the author of Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America, our guest today on Latin Pulse, joining us via Skype from Carborough, North Carolina. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Coming up, we dive back into the questions surrounding Honduras and its military. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for the Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As we've mentioned before on this program, Honduras is suffering from scandals linking its military and police to assassination squads. Their targets have included drug reformers, political activists, and leaders for indigenous rights. We asked Orlando Perez for his expert opinion on the questions arising from these abuses and the involvement of the military in policing Honduras. Perez is an associate dean at Millersville University in Pennsylvania. He's the co-author of the new report, Honduran Military Culture, and the author of Civil-Military Relations in Post-Conflict Society, Transforming the Role of the Military in Central America. He joined us via Skype from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. The military is still a very important uh, political institution, and that while they claim, for example, that the coup was in response to a Supreme Court order uh, and that it was um, in their exercise, in the exercise of their constitutional authority. Um, And it's important to note that the Constitution of Honduras does give the military a significant uh, number of roles and a significant amount of institutional authority. Um, It was still a coup. It still was the removal of an elected civilian president. Many, of course, point to Zelaya's unconstitutional actions to justify his removal. But nonetheless, I think it shows that the military continues to have a significant amount of political authority, um, and it's still a powerful institution. Um, the, the, the last two governments uh, after the, the coup have continued to rely heavily on the military uh, for uh, domestic security um, and as uh, political support uh, against uh, their political opponents. So certainly the, the military continues to retain significant constitutional authority, power, Uh, roles. And of course, President Lobo and President Hernandez, the two presidents uh, since Celaya, um, have relied heavily on the institution uh, to perform domestic security uh, roles and missions um, and to essentially um, uh, safeguard their position politically within the state. I'm glad you also mentioned the security roles the internal security role of the Honduran military. You mentioned current President Juan Orlando Hernandez, and he has recently 
um, well, even before his term as a very powerful politician in the country uh, leading up Honduras's Congress, um, pushed for a remilitarizing of the police in the country. And as president, uh, has he not also continued this push using the military to supplant the national police in, in many other roles? Absolutely. And that's a great uh, question and a great point. Uh, president Hernandez, uh, when he was running for president, uh, and then before when he was president of the National Assembly, um, had pushed for the creation of what has become a militarized police, uh, Policia Militar de Orden Público. Um, and this is a hybrid uh, institution, a hybrid unit that combines, that is composed primarily of military uh, uh, soldiers, uh, but are trained in police tactics. So these are uh, essentially off uh, military um, personnel that are equipped uh, and trained in um, in military tactics, um, heavy weapons, armored vehicles, uh, and and are used for domestic security purposes. Um, his whole point was that the police, the civilian police, was corrupt. He had pushed, while well, he was National uh, uh, Assembly President, for a purging, a complete purging of the police through a number of rigorous testing of um, police, including uh, lie detector tests, drug testing, and then purging those that have been involved in corruption, etc., as president, he has strengthened the military police. Um, president Lobo had instituted a security tax, uh, which has been used primarily to fund, again, the strengthening of the military police rather than the civilian police. The civilian police um, has shown itself to be completely incapable of dealing with the security problem. It is underfunded. Um, it is corrupt. Um, a few months ago, evidence surfaced of police complicity in the murder uh, a few years ago of the uh, narcotics attorney general or the, the state attorney general in charge of um, narcotics prevention or narcotics uh, um, um, fight against narcotics. Uh, and this was a, a crime that garnered a significant amount of attention internationally. And it is clear that the police were very much involved, high-level police uh, officers, um, including the director of the police itself. And so this has given President Hernandez an excuse um, and a, 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 the, the, the political support to strengthen the involvement of the military in domestic uh, security. He has also created something known as FUSINA, which is um, the Fuerza Nacional de Seguridad Interinstitucional. It's essentially an interagency um, national security uh, group that brings together uh, not just the military police, and the military itself, but also um, tactical SWAT teams 
within the national police um, to coordinate efforts against uh, high-level criminal networks. And, and he has had uh, a number of successes in the last few years. Uh, the overall rate of homicide has been reduced. Uh, so Honduras is no longer the, the most violent country in the region. That uh, distinction goes now to El Salvador. Many people point to these, these new units and forces and coordination um, for those successes. Unfortunately, uh, as you know, there have been very high-profile cases of environmental activists and human rights activists and civil society members getting murdered. Uh, and there have been complicity by military officers, by paramilitary forces, uh, by former and retired military officers working for private companies. Uh, in the murder of those civil society leaders. Um, and so political assassinations continue in Honduras and are a significant problem, even while they have had some successes in reducing overall homicide rates and in fighting some of the um, drug trafficking networks uh, and uh, transnational criminal networks in the country greater success, I think, than El Salvador has had, certainly. Any other key points from your new study that you think that we should consider? One of the most important things and one of the most important questions facing uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, I think, is what is the role of the military in this, in this new environment? Um, and, and I have been thinking about uh, whether or not these countries uh, should transform their military institutions into hybrid forces, into gendarmeries, into uh, guardia civiles, basically into, um, into forces that can operate uh, in communities as police while also dealing with high-level violent cartels. Uh, and so uh, I think looking towards examples of the um, Chilean Carabineros or the Gendarmería in Argentina or the Gendarmerie in France or the Guardia Civil in Spain, uh, looking at those examples of sort of hybrid forces that are capable of performing multiple roles is, I think, um, one of the ways that we could move forward. Um, there aren't really any traditional defense threats. Uh, even though the militaries still talk about those threats, so the Honduran military, if you talk to officers, will still talk about the soccer war and we'll still talk about the the threats from across the border but the threats from across the border are not from the salvadorian military they are from salvadorian gangs which aren't really going to cross the border and attack honduras they're going to do it surreptitiously they're going to do it uh by infiltrating communities by working with drug cartels um and those kinds of threats are not going to be tackled effectively by traditional 
uniformed military institutions. So thinking um, creatively and innovatively about and looking at other examples around the world of hybrid forces that uh, are highly trained, highly capable um, in both police and high-level military efforts is, I think, a way to go. Thank you so much, Orlando Perez, Associate Dean at Millersville University, the author of Civil-Military Relations in Post-Conflict Societies, Transforming the Role of the Military in Central America. He joins us via Skype from Lancaster, Pennsylvania on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, production assistant, Chorsey Martin, and technical director, Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions. Music